treatment. When was the last time you took, <coughs> excuse me, a hard look at your you at your or your partner's driving skills? These information here uh, gives you a way to check your own skills. Um, determine your range of visions. Put your arms up at your sides and bend your elbows to a 90-degree angle to your right and left. Your hands should align with your ears. In other words, just hold your hands up like, stick them up. You want to stick them up. While looking straight ahead, wiggle your fingers. While looking straight ahead, don't be cheating. While looking straight ahead, wiggle your fingers. Can you see them move? By the way, I have done this. That's reading I'm really passing it on to you. Um, if you have a strong 180-degree useful field of vision, then you're in good shape. If you don't, uh, if not, move your arms toward the center of your body until you can see your fingers move. The standard requirement for drivers in many states is 140 degrees. Your hand should only move a few inches forward to pass the test. Test your flexibility. Uh, if you can, good. If you're good to go, but keep monitoring your field of vision. Test your flexibility. Set in, set on a chair with your back to a closed door, about ten feet directly behind you. Turn your head to look over your right shoulder as far as you can. Can you see the doorknob? It's okay to move your upper body and even put an arm behind you as you would reach around the passenger seat when turning to see out the back window of the car. If you can do that, review your driver's records. Next, how many tickets or police warnings have you received in the past two years? Driving citations issues, issuer considers tickets in a two to three year span to assess your driving risk. A high number of tickets indicates diminished driving skills. Research found that, found that the risk of having a car crash went up to up about twenty went up about twenty percent in the day thirty days following a moving violation for those over the age of 50. A step back to the flexibility right now. New cars have safety features to help detect what's behind or next to you, but that doesn't fully replace the need to use your eyes. Backup cameras can cover the entire back of your car and don't keep the right position proportion on distance. Using only mirrors also create a problem with judging distance. If you can't fully turn around to see out the back window, this could be a problem. Okay. Uh, now let's go on to uh, da, 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 how many accidents have you caused in the past five years? <laughs> Hello. Um, this is going back to checking your records and stuff. Accidents. 
Drivers average one accident every 16.6 years. Causing two or more in five years is a reason for concern. Do cars routinely, all right, performance assessment while driving. This is a regular chart I'm reading off this thing. Uh, do cars routinely pass you or are you honked at often? Which meaning slower driving as your age, sometimes your brain and body aren't communicating communicating as quickly as they used to. You may tend to slow down without realizing it, realizing it. If you're driving well under the speed limit, that's a concern. Some of the things that you have to pay attention to is do the cars routinely pass you? Uh, do you ever go out of your way to avoid busy intersections or avoid making a left turn across traffic? <laughs> some of you do. Some of you just make the left turn from the right turn lane. Uh, have you struggled to move your foot between the gas pedal and brake? That sounds dumb, but it happens. Have you... in at inadvertently stopped at green lights or driven through red lights? Have you snapped at people in the car with you? In other words, you yelled at them. Do you ever find yourself drifting out of your lane or feel that cars sometimes appear out of nowhere? Do you ever forget where you're going? Any of these could be an early warning of some decline in your overall driving ability. Now, this goes right along with the Simmons Car Care Show. Ask a loved one. This gets real tricky, and it's also not very popular because most of the time you don't have to ask. Seek an honest assessment for someone you trust. That person may notice things that you don't. Does your loved one say your driving is good? If they do, congratulations, you're the first one I've heard of. Consider your health. Do you regularly take any of the following types of medication? Opioid pain relievers, uh, products containing codeine, antipsychotic drugs, antidepressant drugs, sleeping pills, muscle relaxants, prescription drugs for anxiety, um, medicines that treat or control symptoms of, believe it or not, diarrhea. Medicines that treat or prevent symptoms of motion sickness. Diet pills, stay awake drugs, and other medications with stimulants, for example, caffeine, and a few of those little atoms. Anti-seizure drugs, anti-epileptic drugs. Prescriptions or over-the-counter medicines can have side effects that can cause reactions that may make it unsafe to drive. And if you take multiple medicines, consider that they may not interact well. Talk to your doctor about any concerns. Before you go to jumping into medications, you make sure you've talked to your doctor and you understand what they're saying. Because I'm telling you, if they increase a medication over what you've been taking, there ought to be a warning sign with it that says, Hello, Jerry, uh, we have increased your medicine, so you really need to watch for these side effects um, and pay attention to them because they're real. 
they're 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 actually real. So you want to pay attention to those. If you have any questions or you want me to repeat any of those, just give me a shout. 719-1490. 719-1490. And then the other thing it gets me is the fraud that's going on and the phone calls on a daily basis of people trying to scam you out of your everything. If you want to help protect an older loved one from fraud, this is you or your older loved one or your dad or mom. Persuade the person to sign up for a service that constantly reviews all their financial accounts for unusual transactions and then send alerts to you or others if they occur. Um, Eversafe, uh, GodChance.com, Eversafe.com promises to put older Americans' finance under a microscope and root out fraud. Well, they'll root out probably 99.9% of it. Uh, I do have one of these on my accounts and have had for years because I can't keep up with the fraud that's coming through. And anybody can hack anything now that we've all seen. So uh, you want this kind of coverage on it? Another one that I heard of and actually checked out and actually purchased was the real estate for mortgage fraud where people can go in and sign a quick claim, sell your house, and you're out in the middle of the woods before you know it. Their computers constantly monitor how money is spent, searching for red flags. These services can offer peace of mind at a price. Check websites for fees. In other words, have somebody check them because I am more than sure that somebody has put something out there that mimics these things. Before you dial the number and engage in this stuff, make sure you check it out. Check it out with the BBB. Check it out with the Consumer Fraud Divisions. Whatever you've got to do to make sure that the place that you're hiring to keep you safe from fraud and keep your checking account where it's supposed to be and your savings account where it's supposed to be, make sure you check them out, too. They're not exempt. So don't even say, oh, well, Jerry said it. No, bullcrap. You check them out. GuideChance.com, Eversafe.com, LifeLock.com. I've had good service there, but I I haven't used these others. I don't know what kind of service they offer. But when I checked out LifeLock, it took me a half a day to check it and make sure and find people that were using them. And then once I went online, signed up for it to protect me, my assets, and everything, um then every time I'd write a check or something that was out of the ordinary, uh, like for Mustang parts, uh, something that's just very rare and out of uh, out of context, I'd get a notification. Did you write this check to blah, 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 blah? Boy, I felt good. I felt really good. And, you know, if you write a, a larger check than what you're normally used to writing, they'll notify you. They'll find out, did you write this check? What was this for? Do you agree with this, or do we need to proceed uh, further investigation? So that stuff is real, and it's a real asset. It's almost as good as putting the I've fallen and can't get up button on somebody that has a physical or taking a bunch of uh, prescribed medication that makes you dizzy, and you live by yourself, and you um, you know, you just can't put it all together at any particular time. So you have this little button that goes off and falls and calls somebody. My father had a problem with this because I don't need any of that stuff. 
Well, it took us about three months to get him just to wear it when we got it. After he got it, uh, about three years before he died, he used that thing 12 times because of his inability to move around once my mother died and he had to go by himself to do everything. Uh, so that life lock and the, I, the help button in case you fall or something or in a house, because accidents do happen to senior citizens when you're not paying attention, like falling out of a shower or falling in a tub. So get yourself protected. They don't cost that much, and they're worth their weight in gold. They're a life-saving son of a gun. So any questions, 719-1490, 719-1490. And we'll get into it just a little bit more. Uh, I'm not an expert in it. I, I just passing on the information that I've researched and come up with and made a heck of a lot of sense to me. The other little question that I keep getting is about, uh, motor oils, uh, you know, different motor oils and, and additives and stuff like this. And of course, there's always debates on everything. All right. Um, which is uh one of the questions is which is better for my original older engine and why conventional oil or synthetic and which one leaks less and what if that older engine has been recently rebuilt okay this this is from a technical products manager at Amsoil Corporation which is a uh, makes engine oil additive and everything else as long as your engine is mechanically sound a motor oil isn't going to cause leaks, whether it's conventional or synthetic. If it leaks free and it, if it's leak free and in good shape, use a synthetic oil to provide maximum protection. The same goes for healthy rebuilt engines. If your engine is older and does leak, the problem could be seals and gaskets that have become brittle or worn. Even if the engine doesn't leak, the seal could still be in poor condition. Sometimes sludge builds up enough to effectively prevent oil from slipping past deteriorated seals and gaskets. Using a high-quality synthetic oil with good detergents can dissolve the sludge and reveal the true condition of the seals causing leaks. If you suspect an engine falls into that category, we recommend sticking with a conventional oil. And that is from the technical manager, products manager at Amsoil Corporation. In most cases, classic engines that have been using conventional oil for several years should stay with conventional oil. The seals get accustomed to the lubricant and big changes like switching from conventional to synthetic can cause them to leak. For rarely driven cars, the risk is not worth the reward. So just stick with conventional oil. Just stick with conventional oil. Now, if the engine is getting rebuilt, then you can go to a synthetic and then stay with synthetic after breaking, after the breaking in process. Synthetic doesn't like to break in, so you need to break in your engine for about 1,500 miles on regular oil, then you can switch it over to full synthetic. Is there any, is there anything to these oils aimed at high mileage or older cars, or is that just a marketing gimmick? 
Many high mileage or vintage cars, car oils, have higher amount of zinc, which does help decrease wear in the older engines. Their additive package also includes the detergents and dispersants needed to help clean and protect your engine, along with seal conditioners and more. Of course, with this, these products, you also have a lot of marketing noise and false promises, as you do uh, in any other segment. But quality, high-mileage oil are certainly good for your classic or vintage cars. Remember to be specific and differentiate between oils for high-mileage cars and classics or vintage cars. There are many different high-mileage oils, but a 2009 Audi diesel with 200,000 miles will need a different motor oil than a car from the 70s. And this is from Rowe Motor Oils. I strongly believe that the uh, that a uh, legacy stock engine should use an engine oil formulated that was more prevalent in the earlier era. Certainly one that is conventional or mineral-based and possesses high anti-wear content. I have never been a fan of running modern-day full synthetic engine oil in older engines. Due to their light nature, synthetic oils could accelerate, exaggerate, exaggerate, whatever, and leaking blow-by or oil-burning issue. In other words, it could accelerate it. If your engine has been rebuilt and the system is without a catalytic converter, reach for oil laden with anti-wear additives. Okay, everything's supposed to be in there. How much zinc does my older engines need? Zinc was what they used uh, a long time ago to help lube an engine and preserve an engine, but you have to be real careful with it if you have a catalytic converter. It depends on the engine make, model, and vintage as well as its purpose. Is it for racing or just the occasional trip around town? Modern engine oils are formulated to be backward compatible with older stock gasoline engines. However, plenty of modified older engines are out there with flat tappets and aggressive performance cams. For these souped-up old-timers, a high-zinc oil, like some racing oils, might be prudent. Defer to OEM recommendations for stock engines and to the engine builders recommend and to the engine builders recommendation for the modified engine. That comes from Valvoline Technology Team. I recommend above 1,200 parts per million if it has a flat tappet cam or lifter. That's for the zinc recommendation. Um, a lot of older people, questions, a lot of older people recommend diesel oil for older gasoline engines. Is this a good advice? Why and why not? Okay. The diesel oil recommendation most likely started when API reduced the amount of zinc in gasoline engine oil. Diesel oil contains higher amount of zinc, so this is why people use them in gasoline engines. Another potential factor is the wider viscosity selection of diesel oil. If your classic requires a 15W40, 
for example, it's going to be hard to find a gasoline engine oil in that viscosity. Diesel specification specific engine oils are designed to help remove the soot and other byproducts of running diesel fuel a greater amount than gasoline produces. Therefore, diesel oil usually contains a higher concentration of certain detergents to clean the internals better. Usually, this is a good thing. However, the detergent can be so effective that they remove parts of the oil film film from the cylinder walls, and that can mean quicker wear because it takes you have to have that oil film on film on the wall to keep the rings from eating up the cylinders. <coughs> Excuse me. There are other reasons why people use diesel oil in gasoline engines, but none of them are, and, and this is uh, from Liquid Molly, in my opinion, valid. Modern high-quality gasoline engine oils are much better at protecting the engine than any diesel oil will ever be. Okay. Okay, whatever. But that was from Liquid Molly. The diesel recommendations come from the days when diesel oil contained more ZDDP zinc than gasoline engine oils. Today, API CK4 diesel specs allow oil to be the same ZDDP level as a gasoline car oil, so the advantage of diesel oil has been eliminated. So they've changed the the gasoline motor oils uh, to match the diesel motor oils is what it looks like from this article. And this is from a certified lubricating specialist, uh, Driven Racing Oil, uh, Lake Speed Junior. What should I use when breaking in a rebuilt engine? Answer, we would defer to the engine builder's recommendation on this. That's from Vaveline Technology Team. Engine builder, when they build one, they have one that they use for break-in and one for running. And that's what they recommend you do. What makes racing oil so special, and when do I need them? A properly formulated racing oil is designed specifically to deliver the benefits of racing engine needs, such as improved extreme heat resistance, maximum friction reduction, or optimum power, and increases film strength to protect bearings in powerful, high-torque engines. Passenger car motor oil, on the other hand, are designed with fuel economy and longer oil life in mind benefits racing vehicles don't need since their oil is changed frequently. Using oil designed specifically for racing if competition in competition vehicles. And that's another one from uh, the technical manager at Amsoil Corporation. All right, question. Is it okay to run a racing oil in my streetcar? Okay, here we go. Answer. Using a racing oil in streetcar is not a great choice unless you perform very frequent oil changes. Racing oils don't contain the same amount of detergents, dispersants, or other ingredients that are needed for longer oil change intervals. Keep the engine intervals clean equals less wear. So an oil needs to clear away byproducts and suspend them long enough 
that they reach the oil filter and get trapped. Racing oil offers often contains high zinc levels, and that zinc will damage exhaust emission equipment that can be costly to repair. So if you use the racing oil and you use it all the time, uh, heads up, it'll probably work on your uh, catalytic converter pretty good. It has some liquid molly also. Uh, what oil do you recommend for an air-cooled Porsche? Okay, a combination of 2050 for cars up to 1960, then 10W60 till the last till the last 993 model, and that comes from a technical department at Miller Oil. Many air-cooled Porsches should run on a 2050 engine oil for most. Of the late, for most of the late models, Porsche recommends 5W40 or 10W40. Once again, it's always best to follow the factory guidelines unless there are special circumstances such as a very cold climate or racing application. That comes from MPT Industries, which is another manufacturer. Can I run a high zinc oil in my newer engine? Yes, you can, but should you? No, you should not. High zinc in a new engine will damage the catalytic converter and possible other emissions-related equipment installed in a car. Zinc is no longer necessary because it has been replaced with better, more up-to-date additives. Liquid molly. Okay? There's a lot of stuff out there for you. A lot of stuff out there for you. Uh, and so if you have any questions on that, I still have the articles in my hand from research. I'll be more than happy to go over with them later. 719-1490, 719-1490. We can go over this stuff any anytime you want to, 719-1490. As you probably figured out, I'm running uh, without a shotgun this morning, without uh, Jim or Brian, and I'm doing it with just Simmons. So we're covering some of the stuff that I found that, uh, one, I get questions about, and, two, uh, it, it just it makes common sense, especially – about the medicine that older people takes and how it actually affects the reaction time, uh, the drowsiness, the not knowing where you're at, things like that. I want you to pay attention to that because we're all going to, if we're not there by now, we're going to get there anyway. So you need to know what you need to do. You need to know what you don't know. You need to know if all of a sudden your driving abilities are falling off. And the numbers say that they are. The older we get, the less we are driving like we were when we were 17, 18 years old. So that's the reason I wanted to bring that up to you. Uh, this portion of the show is brought to you by Spectrum, Ina Road Auto Collision, 4425 West Ina Road, 744-4454. Spectrum, Ina Road Auto Collision. They're behind a Jiffy Lube and a car wash off of Ina Road. 744-4454. If you need a paint job, you can get it done. If your paint's blistering up on your car and you notice it, and it shows up on a roof most of the time first, and it'll have little white spots coming into whatever your paint is. And if you've got a white car, it's going to be a light white. It's going to look almost like a. Uh, it's covered with a, um, a dust, a white dust or something. When you see that, it's better to get it taken care of then because it will only get worse. 
It's only going to get worse. They have the ability at Spectrum to match the paint to the paint that's not faded, and you can keep your car looking pristine. And don't forget to have it waxed about twice a year, hand waxed about twice a year, and keep the wax off the rubber components on the around the windows and stuff because it will cause them to harden and break. I've seen this firsthand. So just, but if you have any questions about your vehicle's care of the paint or you need a repair, you've gotten an accident, it needs to be fender straightened out, are two things to remember. One, Spectre Minor Road can do it. And two, they still have an issue getting parts like the automotive repair industry does. And plus, getting quality parts. Quality parts means that uh, it's somebody's kind of dropped the ball or they're uh, trying to manufacture outside their parameters that your facility can actually handle. So they're pushing stuff through, and the quality control is not what we're used to seeing in the repair industry. Uh, even some of the new parts that we get are not what they used to be. They're not. We, we can't trust them. We have to prove everything that you do on a vehicle anymore. And we've been doing it for years. That's the reason we know when there's good parts coming down, and that's when we know not to order the next one until somebody figures out what happened to the last two we bought. And um, so it takes a little longer to repair a car because of the parts. It takes a lot longer to repair in, in the collision industry because of parts availability. You know, the COVID thing slowed down everything in the world. And some of the places that were vendors for car parts are no longer there, and they've switched to other vendors who were able to hang on to it, but maybe they weren't geared up to the quality or the uh, the inspection quality control that we're used to seeing. So everything's going to take just a little bit longer, and just remember that when you go in to have your vehicle repaired, whether it be a collision or whether it be um, – uh, paint, well, collision or just uh, regular repair. Keep in mind, body shops do mechanical repair on these cars too. And they have the same issue getting parts for the cars that have had it torn off due to a wreck or something as we do uh, just uh, trying to fix the part that you come into the shop uh, for repair. So having seen all of that, 719-1490, I invite you to give me a shout down here if you've got any questions that you want to go over about the lube of these vehicles. I see a lot of that. Uh, there is articles in there that I read that says, oh, don't use any, don't use any additives because the engine oil has everything. Well, if the engine oil had everything, that means that the gasoline doesn't have enough because uh, most of your manufacturers now, all, in fact, everyone I know of, recommend that you put a can of additive. It's got their part number on it. It's got a can of additive every oil change in the vehicle. So you run an extended oil drain intervals and you go down to your favorite store, whether it be Merrill's or, uh, you know, any of your big parts houses, and you go in and you order a oil filter. Let's just say an oil filter. And you just order the cheapest oil filter. You've seen it. You know what you're going to pay for it. And you're running full synthetic. And it's an extended drain. 
When you order that oil filter, you ask that person across the counter, is this for extended drain intervals? Will this go the 5,000 or 7,000 that I'm supposed to have? Because the cheapest oil filter that they're going to have is going to be the one for a 3,000-mile oil change. So be careful when you do that. You need the extended drain oil filter. If you're going to be running extended drain intervals between five and 7,500, some of them are up to 10,000. I still can't get my head around that, not in Arizona. And read your owner's manual. They've got a bunch of good tips. Go to extreme service. Go to extreme service. You're in the extreme climate. <coughs> Excuse me. With a lot of pollen and stuff involved. And, but you want to get the stuff for the extreme. The other little question I got the other day had a phone call. I had a 97 Ford diesel 7.3 uh, turbo. And she said, it doesn't pull the load the way I want it to pull. And what can I do to change this? Because I'm I'm having to run flat out on some of these hills going to Utah. Yep, well, <laughs> uh, Utah is going to put a strain on any engine. I don't care if you got one of these 850-foot-pound things that I've got or if you have one that's got about 450-foot-pounds. The thing with a diesel engine, for you running these older motors, older diesels, when you get ready to go up a hill, first thing you do is you make sure – that that RPM is not under 2,200. As soon as you get ready to go up a hill, you make sure you get that 2,200 minimum RPM range, and you hold it between 22 and 24. Yeah, you may get down to 40 mile an hour. Turn on your emergency blinkers, but keep it around there because you have a turbo. If you put a chip in it, which, by the way, uh, Deb, this uh, 97 will take a chip. I've researched it. It will take a chip. And you can increase your horsepower and your torque, but you've got to remember you have a turbo that's going to be involved in that. When that turbo, when the exhaust gas temperatures in your turbo get up to around 1,350, bad things start to happen if you keep it there long. So you have to stay with diesels don't normally heat up when you get over past the, the especially the Ford. When you get over where it says hot and it goes past that, you find a place to let that thing rest or you get it back to cruise as soon as you possibly can because unless you're running some high-dollar synthetic in there, uh, you're going to be having a problem. And the uh, so just, yes, you can chip them up, but don't go just because it'll run 2,800 RPM or 2,900 RPM on a 3,200 uh, line. And it will pull a mountain. Boy, you, you, you're in tall cotton. You're pulling that hill coming out of Flagstaff back to Tucson. Yeah, this thing's just a rocking and a rolling. You look down on this Ford, it never overheats and it is hot. That means that the torque, that the, uh, turbocharger is also hot, hot and that you're going to be having some uh, potential engine failures if you don't get that thing back down to around a normal range, right 700, 900 degrees. So be careful when you chip these things up. Just remember, now I'm telling you this because I had one, I had a chip made for mine out of uh, Austin, Texas, and I run that son of a gun, and that's the best thing I've ever put on that truck. It would just fly. I come out towing 
17,000 pounds, and I was running 55 miles an hour up the hills. And, boy, I thought, this is absolutely great. That's the best money I've ever spent, $350 for a chip that allowed me to do this. Well, I got up there about halfway up that mountain, and all of a sudden I looked down, which I normally don't even bother looking because, after all, a Ford diesel does not overheat. And that son of a gun had run the needle out to the right side. I like to have a heart attack. The traffic was bumper to bumper. Thank God for the 18-wheeler that realized that I was having a problem and allowed me to get in front of him. Slowed that son of a gun down, drove it up to the uh, top of the mountain, and then I kept watching it, and then the temperature started coming back down. So, and when I sold that truck, it still had the same motor in it, still had the same high-quality motor oil in it, and I didn't have a problem. I do not recommend you do that because you may not be as fortunate as I was. So if you're running a computer chip in these big diesels and you're pulling a load, that diesel is working at the optimum. It's working. It's actually good for it, but not at 2,800 RPM when you're trying to fry your turbo. Because your turbo is running about 10,000 RPMs when you're sitting there cruising at about probably 20, about 20, about 2,200. When you step it up, that thing can go up to 2,000 RPM. That turbo is getting with the program. It's smaller than your engine, and it really, it's got to do its job. So you're saying, okay, give me more air. By golly, that's what it's doing to the best of its ability. Don't do it. Run that diesel between 22 and about 2,500 RPM. Don't let it get down to 1,800 and then reach up and grab a gear and try to pull out of it when you're going uphill. You're out of your range. Get that thing at 20. Keep it at 2,200 when you're running up the mountain. If you're cruising out on the freeway, okay. If you want to go 1,500, 1,600 RPM, that's fine. But don't hit a heavy grade at 1500 rpm and expect that thing to take the downshift and pull out from it no when you get to that mountain and it looks like it's not going to be there at 1500 reach up and pull it in second down to second gear take it out of overdrive whatever you've got to do but get that thing to 2200 when you start that hill and accelerate it up and try to keep it between 22 and 2500 if it comes down under 2,200, find a safe place to pull it off or find a place where you can actually pull another gear and keep it at 2,200. It's going to take that to keep that thing running cool, but it won't over-stress the turbocharge. So if you got any questions about that, you can call me too. I put chips in everything I own except this last one I've got. And, of course, my 06 would have had enough power too. But in the earlier model diesels where people say, oh, I, well, especially the 604 Fords, oh, I want to put one in because this thing's losing power. Partner, that chip is not the problem. If you're losing power in a 604 Ford, it's a good motor originally. <laughs> There's other issues with it. Don't put a chip in it and expect that to cover up the lack of power that you have. If you notice it has lost power. So before you do that, do a little bit of research, get a hold of somebody that's been there, done that, and has the T-shirt, and find out, okay, what can go wrong if I hit a hill and I let it pull down to 17, 1800 RPM, and then I pull it down to second gear because, after all, it's supposed to take off. No, it don't work that way, not on that diesel. 
it didn't work for me. It probably won't work for you, and it didn't work for a couple other people that I know that we actually took a drive down to Sonora here in Tucson with the trailer hooked to it, and we drove up. She drove it the first time. The way she drives it, we're like not a got across the, the top of the summit down in Sonora going just to Sonora. When I come back, the only problem we had was uh, we had to maintain the 55-mile-an-hour speed zone because I downshifted early. I got that RPM up to 2,300, 2,400. I come across that mountain like a shot out of a gun with the same load, same pull, same, same long-range hill, but I come across it, and it worked better. And then after that, she didn't have any more problems. You can make a diesel pull anything you want to, there's enough technology out there and enough enough old-timer uh, solutions that we can make them pull. You can go to a gear reduction. I asked her about her gear reduction. She said, I have a 411. That, and that should pull anything. If you're up in the horsepower range and the torque range on these diesels, which is going to be around 22 to 2,500, that should get you right in there. Because if you go to 3,200, you're going to be overrunning it and you're going to be heating a turbo, you're going to be heating an engine, you're going to lose the efficiency of the engine, you're going to overheat the transmission. It's just too much to ask for that motor to do. Now, you've got Fords out there that run 1,000 horsepower. You've got Dodges that have, a, I mean, 1,000 foot-pounds of torque. The Fords got a ridiculous amount of horsepower. You could put it on there, you'll be, you won't even hardly know your load's back there. But it's still a big monster that's pulling. And if you take that thing up to 28, 2900 RPM, you're going to see your little temperature needle start to move up. When you do, it's time to get out of it. Downshift it, give it a chance to breathe a little bit, and then you'll be okay. Now, for the rest of you that are using a gas burner, and you say, wow, I'd like to this thing to pull this horse trailer a little better or this RV a little better or whatever your needs are, you can always do a gear change in the differential. You can do an exhaust system that will open it up and let it get rid of the gasoline that's going in there. It will breathe easier, and that will give you a little more RPM as far as your horsepower on the top side. But in some instances, it, on the bottom end, you're going to suffer a little bit with the torque because it, it doesn't have any back pressure going back to the engine. It's breathing too easy. But there is numerous things that you can get. I see people that go out and they have these, uh, well, we'll take a Ford. Take a Ford. I want a chip to go in my gas burner. So they put a chip in the gas burner. Man, I'm going to pick up additional 12 horsepower of this thing and, <coughs> excuse me, 25, 30 pounds of torque. Okay, good. You can do that. And I'm running a 300 gear in the rear end. Or 355, a 354, or 343, whatever you you're, you have, and you're trying to tow something that's around 12,000 pounds. There is going to be a little issue there. One, you're expecting way too much of the uh, that little 12 horsepower that you're putting in there. Addition, and you have to remember what goes in an engine has to get out. If you put more gas in the engine, it's got to go somewhere. It's burning it. The exhaust has to be enlarged. It ha can't have any wrinkles in it like the old 7.3 uh, on the header pipe going down to it where half of it's flat. Most of the time you can just open that header pipe and pick up. It feels like you added another 20 horsepower or something. But 
on the gas burners, if you've got a two-inch exhaust, two-and-a-quarter-inch exhaust, you need to open it up if you're going to put a chip it. If you're going to chip it, we call it chip it and dip it. If you're going to chip it, be sure to dip it downstream to where you can open it up and allow that to get out. For the people running uh, gas burners, and you have these catalytic converters, and you've got 100,000 miles on your cat converter. And you say, wow, this thing's been doing really well. You know, it's over 100,000. Let's take 125,000 and play with it. Most of your catalytic converters have a 100,000-mile guarantee uh, that it'll run, and it's under warranty. Federal government says they gotta last. they got to last at least that long. Well, you run across an issue, and you pull it into Simmons or Parker Automotive or Automotive Specialist, and they say, hey, your cat's plugged. Well, how in the world can that be? Cats don't plug, people. Cats have a reason they plug. It's kind of like a battery. Most batteries, uh, there's a reason they fail premature. Same way with catalytic converters. Catalytic converter fails under 100,000, 60,000, 70,000 miles. You better find the cause. If you have a engine miss in a cylinder miss for 30 days or more, you're going to start having catalytic converter problems because it's either going to be plugged or it's going to be burnt out on the inside. You've got to find out why the cat is gone south. If you're running 125,000 and you're running uh, 125,000 miles and, and we say, okay, when's the last time you had a major service, which means spark plug, plug wires, all of that should have been done by then. And you say, well, you know, I have it. It's been, uh, if you have to stop and think about it, you're probably overdue. And that means that your spark plugs are not burning as clean as they should. And uh, you've got uh, more raw fuel going down through for the catalytic converter to process. And it's just working its heart out trying to burn this extra fuel you got in there. And when you put extra fuel to a catalytic converter, you only have, there's two choices that catalytic converter has. One Plug up. Oh, God, that's too much. I can't swallow that mount. I've got to, I, I just can't do it. And so they quit processing. The other one is it goes in and it actually burns the catalytic converter, the substrates out of the cat. And either way, it starts to plug up. When it plugs up, you start to, you have an overheat problem. And I've had people argue this with me, but uh, seeing it firsthand, it's kind of hard to argue with me. And But your catalytic converter starts to plug up. You start to lose power, but it's so gradual because the pl- catalytic converter just didn't plug up right now. It's been doing it a while. And uh, all of a sudden, you say, wow, this thing's just not pulling this load like it did last year at this time. Well, uh, you need to find out, verify that that catalytic converter is operating within the parameters as it's supposed to, and also check and make sure that your uh, catalytic converter, you could check the bottom of it, cold. I, I, I definitely recommend you checking a catalytic converter cold if you're going to do this process. Uh, you go ahead and tap on the bottom of the cat, see if it rattles. If it rattles, your substrates are coming apart. The second place I want you to tap is your muffler because those substrates have to go someplace, and it's down through the muffler system. So now you've got all this garbage in your muffler system. You'll be pulling along on a freeway or something. All of a sudden, you're just, boy, you're really struggling. This thing is just quit pulling. 
and you're going, the tune-up is perfect, everything is perfect now. Well, it was. However, um, you've got an issue with your catalytic converter coming apart. It had blown the substrates back in the muffler when you put a demand on the engine to give it more power. The substrates get caught in the exit portion of the muffler and actually restrict it to where it can't breathe. Therefore, you can't get rid of the aftermarket burn fuel that's supposed to go out the exhaust pipe. Well, if you can do a uh, volume test, you can just get out and uh, you can put a piece of paper or something under the back of the exhaust and see if it's blowing the paper. I've seen them plugged up so bad that they wouldn't even move a piece of regular paper. That's how bad they were plugged up. And they were barely running at this point. Now, if they bounce up while you're going down a freeway and they plug your muffler and you lose your power, but yet when you go down to off the next exit ramp to say, okay, this thing's not running right, I better get it off the freeway, you go down the exit ramp, you stop it to at the uh, bottom down there, and the substrates actually fall back into the muffler instead of, because there's no reason, nothing trying to pull it out the exhaust. So they fall back down in the muffler. Well, you pull around the corner and say, this thing's running fine now. This thing's running fine. If that ever happens to you, you check your muffler, you check your catalytic converter, okay? Because that is going to be, if it was running all right prior to that, and it, then all of a sudden it starts acting stupid, there's only two things going to cause it. One's a fuel delivery system, and a fuel delivery means going in the engine and getting out of the engine. So you check the obvious, which is going to be, oh, well, it's just got to be the fuel pressure, and that's what most people check. No, you check the mufflers. You've got 125,000 miles on it, maybe, and you can't lie to yourself on this one. When you go to, did I have I serviced this thing on a regular basis? Do I keep the tune-ups or the major service done, the plugs changed? Well, I, I really don't know. Let's see. You know, uh, they, the plugs go 100,000 miles, so they should be okay. Hello. Depends on what you're using it for. Are you working this thing overtime? So you have to think just a little bit out of the box and say, okay, uh, how about spark plug wires? You know, my brother called me and says, uh, when do you change spark plug wires in a car? I said, about 70,000 miles. Why? He said, whoops. That was his answer. Guess who changed his spark plug wires? And that took out that little intermittent miss, you know. And he he babies his cars. But this just out of sight, out of mind. Hey, this thing's running good. Why worry about it? Oh, that little miss. Oh, it could be the weather. It could be um, it could be a little vacuum leak or something like that. You know, it's no big deal. It runs fine. Once it's off idle, it goes along. Well, once it's off idle, it carries the uh, partially dead cylinder, and it's running a little off power. But you don't you're not using it for drag racing, so it doesn't make any difference anyway. So that is some of the little things that you need to pay attention to. And when you're towing, when you're towing, the RPMs is going to force more air out the exhaust. If you have a miss in a cylinder, it's going to put more raw fuel down to the catalytic converter and down past the O2 sensors. And the O2 sensor is going to say, okay, well, we've got, uh, we've got too much fuel. Now we're going to cut back. So it starts cutting back on the air supply. And then it goes in, and it doesn't process the raw fuels going through the system. 
And the other thing that I've seen in industry for the last 45 years is people, since catalytic converters come out, they'll pull in and say, well, I got a bad catalytic converter. Okay, so we check catalytic converter. Sure enough, it's bad. <clears throat> and then we can put a catalytic converter on it. But have we done our job at that point? No, we haven't. And let me tell you why. I'll take you all the way back to the start of this conversation on catalytic converters. Why did it fail? Okay, do we have a, a portion, a part of the engine that is not firing on a regular basis that's sending raw gas down there? Because if you don't find and verify why this cat actually failed, other than you shook it apart on a washboard dirt road and you've actually shaken the substrates out, <clears throat> then there, you have to verify why the cat failed. If you, if you drive over a washboard road, that may be the cause of the cat failing. If you didn't tune your car up at a regular basis at regular intervals, or you let the spark plugs go down to the point, then you put raw fuel down. You're overworking it. You're plugging it up. Uh, if you drive short uh, distances to where the catalytic converter never really comes on and operates in a closed mode, a closed, closed loop, then the system can just continue to get the raw gas that's normally there when you first fire the engine up it doesn't burn long enough to clear it out. So all of these are factors. It doesn't mean that you abuse it. It just means that you need to drive it just a little bit more. It takes about 20 minutes of driving a day to get a cat up to operating temperature, get the car up to operating temperature, and give it a chance to burn out the raw fuels and the byproducts going down through the exhaust systems. So now... That should cover just about anything and everything you ever wanted to know about a catalytic converter. If you've got one with 150,000 miles on, say, wow, this is amazing. I've got a Honda that's got 184,000 with the original cat on it. I have it checked every time it goes in, <laughs> and it's still working. But I keep it tuned up. I keep the oil changed in it. I keep the fuel additives that I want to, to, uh, to aid the top-tier fuels with. And uh, it, so it works, but that works for me. It may not work for you. Every driver has a different driving habit. I do, you do, Mike Parker does, Brian Fuller does. Um, everybody at uh, Merrill's Automotive, everybody has a different driving habit. Driving habits play a big deal in this. Uh, the more fuel you burn through a car, the more chance, especially around town, the better chance that you have of taking out a cat prematurely. So it's what do you do with the car will also come into play whether or not you may have a bad catalytic converter. Catalytic converters are no longer cheap. Trust me, they're no longer cheap. Some of them have two up to four cats on them. When you go to replace four catalytic converters, get ready. You're going to drop some money. So uh, that's, uh, but fuel economy, it will affect the fuel economy. It will affect the, the catalytic converter, will affect the fuel economy, will affect the uh, power coming out of the engine. It will affect whether or not this, depending on the, how bad it's plugged, how much extra temperature this engine is going to retain because it can't send it down the exhaust pipe because the cat's plugged and it can't get past the cat to get to the outside. So it backs up in the engine, and it's actually a back pressure. So 
keep that in mind as you go with your little repairs that uh, out of sight, out of mind type deals. As far as uh, towing vehicles, if you're going to put uh, the chip in a gasoline engine, make sure you have it set up so the exhaust will evacuate the extra fuel and extra RPMs that you're going to be putting in that engine. So and I am just, I'm within a minute of the top of the hour, uh, so I'm going to have to cut this one off, but I'm coming back. And the other thing I want to come back to when I get back was be, uh, let's, let's tow some trailers and let's see if your vehicle is qualified to tow the trailer that you're actually towing. So that should take me pretty close to the one minute I got left. Is that right, Andrew? Yeah, you got uh, 30 seconds, Hello, Jerry. Andrew. <laughs> hey, producer. You got uh, 30 seconds, Jerry. All right, 30 seconds. Thank you, sir. So I only have 30 seconds left. So we've covered uh, your uh, things that you may want to check on yourself to make sure your driving skills are staying up to what they're supposed to be. And I'm not telling you anything about those driving skills that I don't already have be tested on. So just remember that, and we'll be back to review anything and especially we're going to tow some vehicles and we're going to buy some cars.